Well, hey, everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. I'm honored to have you along for the ride. And by the way, a very special welcome to those of you joining us for the first time today. Just slip up your hand. No, I'm just kidding. We don't do that right here. You're like, no, this is why I don't do church. Anyway, but if you're here for the first time you're, or you're tuned in for the first time, well done. I mean, you didn't know it when you joined us today. But this is one of those best possible weekends to jump in at Keystone because today we get to begin a new series called The People of the Way that for eight weeks will explore one of the most significant documents in human history. It's a letter that was written by a first century pastor named Paul uh, to a group of Christians who lived in a city called Ephesus. I brought a map. Um, it was located on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. And as many of you know, uh, my wife and I are planning to go along with Randy and Chris and a bunch of you uh, to Turkey this fall. This is one of the cities that we'll visit. So this letter, uh, fascinatingly enough, eventually made it into the New Testament of the Bible. And so consequently, if you think about it, for like 2,000 years, this letter has shaped the faith and the practice of people all over the world. And I would argue, especially, it shaped the faith and practice of people who, for one reason or another, are in a season where their faith has grown stale. Uh, and here's why I say that. The letter, and we call it Ephesians, it was originally written to a group of Jesus followers who desperately needed to rediscover the wonder that they had felt when their faith began. The wonder that God loved them, had saved them and had invited them to become a new sort of people in the world. Um, and as you can imagine, my hope is that as we engage this material together, that a whole bunch of us who in an honest moment might acknowledge that our faith has kind of grown stale. My hope is that a whole bunch of us who would acknowledge that reality would rediscover as well the wonder of Jesus, like who he is, what he's done for us, and the way of life that he has invited us to live as we follow his example. I mean, maybe that's you. Maybe you're like, whoa, I can't believe we're talking about this, right? I mean, maybe you've always spent part of your weekends in church, like you know the stories and you know the songs, but um, you know, it's been a long time since you felt moved by what God has done for you. Uh, so if it feels, if you're honest, it feels a little bit like you're maybe going through the motions, hear more out of habit than desire. Your faith feels, for lack of a better term, a bit stale? If so, this series is for you. Or, or maybe um, you grew up in church, but Christianity has always felt more like your parents' faith than your faith, right? And recently, um, you've been reading about some of the not-so-wonderful things that some followers of Jesus post online, and you've been talking to your friends about it, and you're sort of wondering, like, is there any truth behind what Christians believe? And if that's you, maybe you're in high school, maybe you're in college, but you wouldn't necessarily describe your faith as stale, but you would definitely not describe your faith journey right now as very wonderful. If so, this series is, is for you. Or, or maybe perhaps you're here and you're exploring what a follower of Jesus should look like because even though you haven't been particularly impressed with the follower of Jesus, that you know you've got this nagging sense that you know, somewhere deep in your gut, if you really could understand what Jesus offered you, like the authentic Jesus, then you might actually want to become one of his followers yourself. If, if, if that's you, then this series is for you. Or, or maybe one more, um, maybe you're here and you've never really spent any time in church, like you're really surprised you're here actually. 
um, and you're wondering about the popcorn, and we'll talk about that later. But, but for one reason or another, you find yourself in a season of life where you've become curious about the roots of the Christian faith. Like, what was it like to be one of those first people to be introduced to the reality of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection? Strip away all the structure, strip away all the people like me, and, you know, what was that like? If that is you, then this series is for you. And I'm thrilled that you're here, because for the next few weeks, I'm going to do my best to help all of us rediscover the wonder of Christianity as it was described by one of the first pastors. And I'm telling you, when you see the beauty and the love and the sacrifice that God has showered on our world through Jesus, if you really see it, you will never be the same. And so, so now that said, of what I want to do with our time together today is sort of set the stage for our exploration of what Paul wrote to those early Christians in Ephesus by answering four questions that will kind of establish the context of the letter that we call Ephesians, because you have to remember before it was in the Bible, it was a letter. Um, and as, as you'll find, as so often is the case, context really is critical if we want to understand what Paul was trying to communicate to them. And then, of course, we ask what it means for us today. So the four questions I want to chase down go like this. Number one, what was it like to live in first century Ephesus? It's a dot on the map for most of us. Number two, who was Paul? Number three, what was Paul's relationship to the Ephesian Christians? And then number four, why did he write to them? Like, why do we have a letter? And so we'll tackle these one at a time. So first up, what was it like to live in Ephesus in the first century? And the first thing that you really need to know about ancient Ephesus is that it wasn't a frusty, dusty rather, frontier town. In fact, it was the fourth largest city in the ancient world, home to some 750,000 people. That's a lot of people now. In ancient times, that is absolutely massive. So what I want to do is show you literally 23 seconds of some drone footage to give you a sense of the city's scale and, uh, and the ruins. So just take a look at this real briefly. So as you can see, um, from the perspective of the ancient world, Ephesus was absolutely massive. Uh, here's a more modern rendering an artist did online. Um, this is the harbor at Ephesus, and you just see the structures. I mean, this was like a mini Rome, a Rome away from Rome, you might say, right? Um, and uh, Ephesus served as the capital of the Roman province. They call it Asia Minor. Today we call it Turkey. Um, and Ephesus completely dominated trade along the Aegean coastline due to its protected harbor. All that to say, Ephesus was a major urban center. Uh, let's look at another image, the theater in Ephesus. So this is a shot taken from the theater. You can see the harbor in the distance. It sat around 25,000 people. That's roughly double the capacity of our beloved Van Andel Arena, right? Um, so it's big. And its markets, the markets in Ephesus, were among the largest in the Roman world. Because boats were always coming and going and people were always bringing products to trade. Uh, moreover, the slave market in Ephesus was the largest in the ancient world. And that's a really big deal when you consider that in the first century, as many as one in three people in the Roman Empire was a slave. So you could buy anything in the markets of Ephesus, including people. Now, the other thing you need to know about first century Ephesus, what it, it was the headquarters for the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis. And the temple to Artemis, here's another rendering, was literally the largest building on earth at the time. 
And as such, it was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Unfortunately, they built it on a swamp. And I'm not strong in the building trades. But when you go there today, there's nothing there. Like you hike out and you're like, well, here it was. The most impressive structure in the ancient world. There's like one half pillar kind of going sideways. And you're like, uh-huh, yeah. Anyway, uh, it was originally constructed, though, of 100 solid marble pillars that stood 68 feet tall. This is 2,000 years ago. And so as you might imagine, the temple to Artemis functioned as a center for both economic and philanthropic activities. It was a hub in this town. It was the largest bank in the region. And then, this is fascinating, but it also offered all people who desired it free food and water and medical care. And so consequently, tens of thousands of people each year would visit the temple to Artemis at Ephesus. It was a major economic engine for the city. And I know that sounds really great, but I'm telling you, the cult of Artemis was also one of the most perverted in the ancient world. And, and I know that we have kids in the room. My kids are in the room, so I'll spare you the details. You can Google it. Don't, but you could. Um, and I'll just say this. Uh, thousands of prostitutes worked for the temple. And things regularly got dark when Artemis was worshipped. And so that's, that's a little bit about what it was like to live in first century Ephesus around the time Paul uh, was there. And so now on to our second question. Uh, so who was Paul? And, and if you're familiar with church, you probably have heard about Paul. But if you're not, um, Paul was Jewish, but he wasn't from Israel. He was from another Roman city called Tarsus, which was another center of a different region in the Roman Empire. But practically what this meant was that Paul was culturally bilingual. In other words, he could operate in both the Jewish world and the Greek world because he understood the way Jews thought and the way Greeks thought. And if you, if you imagine this with me, this made Paul almost singularly qualified to translate the message of Jesus into the Roman world in the first century. Anyway, this is, um, and I find this fascinating, when Paul first shows up in the New Testament, when we're first introduced to him in the pages of the text, he wasn't yet a Jesus follower. If you said, well, he wasn't a Jesus follower, but he became a Jesus follower, like what happened? But when we first meet Paul, he was a powerful Jewish religious professional who was actively seeking to destroy the Jesus movement. And in fact, he had dedicated his life to arresting Christians like wherever he found them. Well, as it turns out, um, he was pretty good at finding Christians and arresting them. And so early in the days of the church, a group of Christians fled Jerusalem some 100 miles north to a city called Damascus in order to hide from Paul. But somehow he found out and decided to follow them like 100 miles. So you're like, how bad did the Christians bother Paul? He, 100 miles, he, they bothered him. That's a lot of bothering, right? If, if my, some, a friend was bothering me, I don't know that I would walk you know, to Ada to talk to them. But Paul walked hundreds of miles. So anyway, uh, in, in the New Testament account of the early days of the church called Acts, A-C-T-S, there was an early Jesus follower named Luke who described Paul's intentions this way. He said, Paul went to the high priest, that's the guy who kind of runs the Jewish religious establishment, and asked him for letters to synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to, and check this out, the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So just notice with me that, like, according to Luke, early Christians weren't called Christians. They were identified as the people of the way. Because, see, they were committed to living the way of life that Jesus had modeled for them, the people of the way. 
I think that's a pretty cool name for a series, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Luke recorded that while Paul was on his way to Damascus in order to arrest Christians, he was blinded by a light from heaven, knocked to the ground, and confronted by a voice that said three words that changed the course of his life. So you got to remember, this is shortly after the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, and Paul believed that the Jesus thing was a lie, a sham, a perversion of Judaism. The three words that Paul heard were these. I am Jesus. And I'm telling you, it's so easy to miss the impact of this moment on our world even today, but this, this encounter completely turned Paul's world upside down. I mean, as I imagine it, as he's kind of laying there on the ground and confronted by the voice, he would have had a ton of questions. But nonetheless, he also would have understood that if Jesus was alive, if he really was alive, and he clearly was, then the Christians were telling the truth. And if Jesus was alive, then he had actually been working against God. He thought he was working for God, but he was actually working against God. And if Jesus was alive, and again, he was, well, then Jesus really was who his followers said that he was. He was the Jewish Messiah. He was the Christ. He was the Son of God. And he was the Savior of the world. I mean, if Jesus was alive, then that changed everything. And, and, and I'm telling you, uh, you know, that day on the road to Damascus, Paul was absolutely convinced that Jesus was alive. Anyway, as Luke's account of this day continues, he noted that things quickly got even more interesting for Paul because he wrote that Jesus told Paul to get up and go into the town of Damascus and then wait for instructions, which Paul did because when a, you know, a, a voice that you thought of a guy who was dead is talking to you, you do what he says to do. So Paul went. And uh, meanwhile, somewhere else in the city of Damascus, God made contact with another Jesus follower named Ananias and informed him that he was going to have an unexpected house guest. <laughs> And as I imagine it, Ananias would have immediately replied, oh, that's fantastic, happy to help, Lord, who is it? And God would have responded, oh, you've heard of him. His name is Paul. And Ananias would have thought, Paul? And God would have replied, yes, Paul, he's going to come into your house today. And Ananias would have replied something like, I have heard many reports about this man. <laughs> and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Like, respectfully, this is a bad idea. And, Lord, I, you know, I don't know if you've been paying it. Maybe you've been distracted. I, he has come with authority from the chief priests to arrest all of those who call on your name. And then God replied, and this is huge, go. This man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, the non-Jewish people. In other words, God makes contact with Ananias and he says, listen, even though Paul has been working against Jesus, I'm about to make him the world's most passionate evangelist for Jesus. I'm going to send him to the Greek world to tell them what I have done for them. And as it turns out, this Greek world included a city called Ephesus. Okay, so that's a bit about Paul. Now on to our third question. Those of you who like structure, you're like, we never do four points. This is amazing. It's like, wow. I mean, I really had, I was like, I don't do points. I'm doing points. Okay, here we go. 
well, I was trying to do like transitions that weren't points and it was like I'm spending all this time on it and I'm like, I got stuff to do. We're just going to do points. Okay, so what was Paul's relationship to the Christians in Ephesus? And, and what historians tell us is that sometime in the early 50s AD, Paul brought the message of Jesus through the city gates of Ephesus. And shortly after passing through those gates, well, he went to the synagogue in Ephesus because there were Jewish people there and they were worshiping God. And, and so you say, well, why would Paul go to the synagogue first? Well, Paul actually makes sense because Paul shared an ethnic background with the Jewish people. He knew their text and he knew all the prophecies that pointed to the Messiah. And so as Jesus had come as the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Jewish Messiah, he thought, well, we'll start here because the Jewish people are best equipped to understand the message. And so Luke, in this book, Acts, recorded Paul's initial activity in Ephesus this way. He tells us, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, talking to them about Jesus. But he said some of them, some of these Jews became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So what you see here is there's a split very early in the church among Jewish people. Like some of them saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophecies. He's the Messiah. He's the resurrected one. Fantastic. Some other Jews basically, you know, they thought what Paul had thought. There's no way. This is a perversion of the truth. And so consequently, Paul, after 90 days in the synagogue, well, he kind of bails and does something else. Check this out. He says, so Paul left them. He's like, enough with you. He took the disciples with him. So he had some of his followers. And then he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, which means the tyrant. It does not sound like a great place, but anyway, a guy named Tyrannus had a lecture hall you could rent. And then he says this, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, modern-day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord. In other words, for two years, like 730 days, every single day, likely over the lunch hour, because they had like kind of a version of the... Um, you know, like in the Latin America, they take a siesta. It's kind of like that, only they didn't call it a siesta because that hadn't been invented yet, but you get the idea. Anyway, so every lunchtime, 730 days, Paul discussed Jesus and the implications of his death and resurrection with countless people, both people who lived in the city of Ephesus and all the people who were traveling through Ephesus. Like they came in the harbor to trade their goods. They heard about Jesus and then with their goods that they took with them, carried the message of what Paul was teaching. And that's why Luke tells us that, you know, G the news of what Jesus had accomplished quickly spread through the entire province of Asia. Additionally, and this is really cool, Luke recorded that as Paul taught about Jesus, heaven kept breaking in to the city of Ephesus in unique ways. Luke tells us the following. He says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. In other words, along with the message of Jesus, the power of the resurrected Jesus kept intersecting with the lives of people in Ephesus. And as you might imagine, that got people's attention. And in pretty short order, the city began to change. Luke tells us this. He says, many of those who believed, in other words, believed in Jesus, now came and openly confessed what they had done. What had they done? Think Artemis. We already talked about that. There you go. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew 
empower. In other words, as Paul taught, people started to recognize that if the message of Jesus was true, well, then they had pretty much built their lives on lies. And so, like, one by one, one life at a time, they turned away from darkness and towards light. And this goes on for a total of around three years. And then Luke records that Paul departed Ephesus in order to return to Jerusalem. And so that's a little bit about Paul's relationship to the Ephesian Christians. He knew them, he loved them, and he understood their world, which is hugely significant. And so now on to our final question for today. Why did he write to them? And uh, apparently, when Paul departed Ephesus, and if you spend any time as a Christian, by the way, this will not surprise you. Paul departed Ephesus. He left behind a group of young Christians who over time slowly began to return to the way of life they had practiced before coming to faith in Jesus. Said a bit differently, in ancient Ephesus, the people of the way began to lose their way. Practically, what this meant was that people who'd come out of temple prostitution wandered back into it. And people who had been known for their volcanic tempers and the tempers had been tempered by Jesus, began to revert to their old ways as well. And, and people who previously had stolen and lied their way through life began to steal and to lie again. And eventually, somehow, Paul learned about this erosion and decided to write a letter that he intended to serve as a refresher course on what it meant to be the people of the way. And I love this because he began his letter to the Ephesian Christians the same way that he had introduced them to Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. Instead of beginning by criticizing their behaviors that were clearly outside of God's design for them, or instead of telling them how they should live instead of the way they were living, Paul took the first half of his letter, like fully 50%, to remind them who they were because of their faith in Jesus. In other words, he spent significant time regrounding them in their identity as children of God. He's like, listen, guys, you weren't, but now you are sons and daughters of God. And you say, well, why did he do that? I would argue Paul was a student of humanity, and he knew something powerful. He knew that we tend to do what we do because we think like we think. And we're going to come back to this next week but we tend to do what we do because we think like we think. In other words, poor behavior is often a consequence of toxic thinking. And I think that's why Paul spent so much time affirming the new identity that someone receives then and now when we accept Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. He wanted to reground the people of the way in the wonder of what was true for them because he was convinced that at least at an emotional level, they had forgotten and he said, I need you to remember who you are because of Jesus. You need to remember that you were lost and now you're found. You need to remember that through Jesus, God adopted you to be one of his kids. You're his son. You're his daughter. And most of all, you need to remember that you are loved by God. Because when you remember that you're loved by God, it changes things. It really does. 
And so that's how Paul began his letter with this glorious celebration of what was true of them despite their behavior. But then, because he couldn't help himself, Paul turns a corner and begins to identify some specific behaviors that needed to be corrected in the lives of the people of the way in ancient Ephesus. And we got to remember, he knew these people, he loved them, and he had lived with them. So he began the second half of his letter by saying, therefore, in other words, all of this is all true for you. This is who you are now because of Jesus. Therefore, he said, I urge you, look at this, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You're no longer who you were, and so you no longer should live the way you used to live. And then Paul got painfully specific, okay? I'm just, we're just going to fire through this real quick. He said things like this, to church people, here we go. <clears throat> Therefore, each of you should put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body, and in your anger do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, and... Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. These are church people. Can you believe it? Right? Yeah, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they might have something to share with those in need. And then he said, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice and one more. But among you, People who used to go to the Artemis temple, but among you, there must be not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. All that to say, Paul wrote his letter, the letter we call Ephesians, because the people of the way had lost their way. And here's what's so amazing. They hadn't walked away from Jesus or church or community because they wouldn't hear the letter if they had. They were still physically present, but I would argue their faith had grown stale. They forgot who they were, and, and so they began to see the Christian life as far less compelling than the life offered by the Roman world. And so they wandered, and they compromised. And when they wandered and compromised, they lost much of their ability to impact their culture because they didn't look different enough. Their faith grew stale and it led them to compromise. I just got to ask you, in the quiet place of your heart, do you feel that at all right now? Years ago, a friend said it this way. He said, do you ever wake up in the morning with a feeling that the faith that you have isn't necessarily a faith worth having? If that's you, I'm telling you, it's time for you, along with the rest of us, to rediscover the wonder of Jesus and the wonder of what it means to be a part of the people of the way. And uh, we're going to pick it up there next week. We're actually going to get into some of the specifics of Ephesians chapter 1. But for now, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time in prayer. And uh, if you're visiting, um, or you're not visiting, but you just would love to talk to someone and have someone pray over you, we, we have some... Friends, it'll be under the screen to your left. So after I dismiss, please make your way over there and we'd love to, to serve you if we can. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, for a whole bunch of us, we desire to fall in love with you all over again. For all of us, there are aspects of our faith, I would imagine, that have grown stale. And, and I pray 
that as we read these ancient words, this ancient encouragement, you would bring something new alive in us or maybe something alive in us again that hasn't been alive in a long time. I pray that we would be overwhelmed with Jesus. Fill us with wonder so that we might show others how good you are. For today, we thank you, and we bless you, and we celebrate you, and we love you. It is in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. Enjoy the sunshine. We'll see you next week.